When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Thank the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. I'm Russell. I'm Adam. Jesus Christ. I'm Adam Russell. And at the end of this podcast, maybe we hear the outtakes and understand why I'm laughing so hard. (laughs) Oh, did you actually say your name? I may not be able to play guitar anymore, but I can say my name. I'm Ryan Key. Hey, I'm Nick. That was very funny and awesome. And yes, I hope that you. put the outtakes to whatever was just going on at the end nope. of the show. Nope. I'm going to record <laughs> it perfectly after we're done recording when the spotlight is not on my face. Just wait till the end of the credits to see the post credit scene and it'll, it'll reveal what's in the next movie <laughs> slash all your f***s. Yep. We're joined this week by a guest, returning guest, old buddy from uh, the band world, Dion Rex wrote in the building, bass player of Anne Berlin. Hi, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me back, guys. More bass players. More bass players. Taking over the world. It's like the bass player version of hosts from Westworld. Yes. I have to bring up Westworld because I love Westworld. I've only seen season one, so I don't get that reference. (laughs) Oh, lucky you. Mm. I mean, it's all good as far as I'm concerned, but season if you only watch season one, do you think Westworld's like the best show on earth? Yeah. (laughs) But Nick... If the concept is that like bass players are the hosts, I'm really scared for my life. <laughs> yeah, you're dead. I am not a bass player and I'm <laughs> outnumbered three to one by hosts. I don't want to spoil Westworld for people, but if you're not a bass player in this new concept, you're going to be a bass player. <laughs> yeah, just copy me. Yeah. Just make well, a copy. In this new world. You can be whoever the f*** you want. Yeah. Even someone who knows how to play guitar. Yeah. <laughs> We're coming for you. We're, we've had it with all this rape and murder. We're going to kill all of you lead singers. <laughs> That's not going in the show. Hi. Welcome to our Star Wars podcast. We, uh, Ashley Eckstein's not going to listen to that. She doesn't want that one. Dude, okay. Can, can we talk about my conspiracy theory right now? We'll put it on the podcast and maybe oh, yeah. we can make a clip out of it. Great. So I was watching a documentary the other day with my wife. My wife. My <laughs> wife about a group, a singing group from another country, and I saw a member of that group, and I said, oh my God, that's Ashley Eckstein. She is a clone of this person. Something's going on here. The person I'm talking about is one of the, I I don't know her name, one of the singers from ABBA. The blonde one, clearly. She looks just like her. It is insane. Well, now I want to Google that. I'm looking this up. If you think about it, Ashley claims to have only been to like three concerts ever, two (laughs) Nukids on the Block and one Bayside, I think so far. (laughs) and you've never seen her in the same room as ABBA. As far as I'm concerned, that's enough evidence. Same person, clones, conspiracy confirmed. I'm looking at the picture. I can I can see it. The video that Adam sent is a smoking gun. 
For sure. Send it to Dion. It is crazy, dude. Has she just happened to be wearing uh, orange and blue uh, jumpsuit? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty wild, dude. Did you watch the video? No, I'm just looking at pictures. Go through the chat, dude. It's, it's pretty wild. It, her mannerisms when she's moving, it, it's even more extreme. Oh, yeah. Here we go. So are we also saying that she's a vampire and hasn't aged? Yes. Cause or that. One of the two. She has now changed. She got to the point where she aged out of her previous life and had to assume a new role mm -hmm. in life and society as Ashley Eckstein voice of Ahsoka Tano. Yeah. That's why mm -hmm. she doesn't go to concerts because she doesn't want to get busted. <laughs> There's some photos that are, yeah, that are very like, whoa. Yeah. Some that are like, yeah, no, I don't see it. But some that are undeniable. Angles. It's all about the, angles. the I'll, angle. I'll just say, Ashley, your hair is way better now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also going to say, Ashley, thanks for my Disney World tickets on Thursday. There's a video for a song called, I think it's called Does Your Mother Know or something like that. She looks most like her there. That's the one that really blew my mind. Dude. Yeah, it's crazy. Look at that, bro. Yeah, that hmm. photo, dude. You're right. That smile. It's true. All of it. It's all true. All right. Music? All right. Let's talk about uh, Star Wars. So we're here with another musician to talk about the music of Star Wars. They have that? Because we like music it. In those movies? We're going to talk about all of the music of Star Wars to some degree, but we're going to get really caught up in John Williams. That, that goes without saying. We'll mention the others, but I think there's so much to talk about, and there may be some other guests who might be more informed, who might go deeper with us, so we might kind of spread this out over a few episodes, probably not next week with the, with the next one, but we'll talk about it some more. So I will say that this is probably more John Williams episode than anything. Do we all agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like they're one and the same, right? The goat. Yeah. I think uh, he defined the whole franchise with what he did with the first movie. I mean, he took a film that was, you know, science fiction, essentially. And instead of doing what most people were doing at the time and doing kind of quirky, futuristic sounding soundtracks, he gave it this great classic Hollywood big orchestral score and that set the tone for everything that followed and that's why we're that's why you I don't think you can talk Star Wars without talking John Williams I mean he is it's George Lucas and John Williams are what made Star Wars Star Wars really and the fact that you guys have talked about it before George Lucas and his ability to kind of see people and kind of recognize their talent and what they would bring to his story that he conceptualized I mean, bringing on John Williams was just one of those things that, like, I can't imagine anybody else doing what he did. It wouldn't be Star Wars without him straight mm -hmm. up. He's as important no. as George Lucas to the whole thing. There's some good, a uh, little bit of backstory. So John Williams, before Star Wars, worked with Spielberg on Jaws. And Spielberg was, he threw out some number, like, Jaws would be 50% less good without the music of Jaws. And George Lucas was starting to get into Star Wars and needed a composer and asked Spielberg. And Spielberg was like, I got your guy. Yeah. And, and it was John Williams. So, I mean, just that whole crew from back in the day of like, who was it? Like Coppola, Spielberg, Lucas, the, just all of them being buddies and like kind of, yeah. yeah, like all nah. kind of really helping each other out and having like a friendly competition. Like Spielberg easily could have been like, John Williams, you're my guy. You know, like I'm not, I'm not letting you work with anyone else. But instead, he was like, right. George Lucas, take this dude; he's the best. Yeah, and the rest was history. But like Dion, like kind of what you said, like I, I think that 
it was more uh, George Lucas's idea to not have this like electronic music of the time or like futuristic cliche music. And it was more about bringing in this grounding and familiar sound when it came to like an orchestra, just because Star Wars was so like physically different looking. He wanted something audibly grounding. And uh, that was all George. John Williams just got it. Speaking of George, did you know that he looked at John Williams in regards to the cantina scene and said, and I quote, imagine several creatures in a future century finding some 30s Benny Goodman swing band music in a time capsule or under a rock someplace, (laughs) how they might attempt to interpret it. That's what he had to go on. Nailed it. Nailed it. (laughs) At a time when all of these sci-fi films were just drenched in like the most cliched electro disco shit of the time, you know, cheesy, Mm -hmm. campy, no risks taken of like, well, what would this music actually sound like in the time that it was in or the galaxy it was in or the space story we're trying to tell just what's popular and what's on the radio. And let's make that go. We've talked about this before the concept of an orchestra, like a symphony orchestra in a sci-fi film was unheard of. Yeah. I would imagine Fox was probably like, you're crazy. Like, absolutely not. But George was like, well, I get to do whatever I want, remember? <laughs> but like, they had to have just been laughing in his face, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, I, I, wonder, I wonder if what sold him is I read somewhere that one of his ideas or inspirations for the Star Wars stuff was golden era Hollywood, 30s, 40s, swashbuckling adventure movies. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if you pitched it in that way to, you know, film executives at the time be like, oh yeah, yeah, you're talking like the greatest movies we ever made. Great. Yeah, cool. You know, stroke their <laughs> yeah. ego a little bit and and sell exactly what you want to them. But but I think I've read or heard on in a documentary or somewhere before that his idea was that he wanted that kind of thing to to be a part of the film. He wanted this classic Hollywood or orchestral score and that most people around him were like, that's never gonna work, you know? Yeah, because the last thing that that had pretty recently kind of gone out of fashion, right? Like, yeah, talk about his his yeah. big influences, things like Lawrence of Arabia. That was fifteen years before, so yeah, not long enough for it to be like time to bring it back. So people were like, "What?" Well, you think about the late seventies and how much everything was changing: movies, culture. Um, you know, I mean, you had punk rock burning the music industry down you know, or try attempting to. (laughs) So, I mean, I can imagine there was quite a cultural shift within business and especially Hollywood. You know, you probably had like young blood coming in saying that's old school stuff. We're trying to do something that's new and now. So I'm sure that there were, you know, we talk about it when we talk about Star Wars, the risk that George Lucas took with everything that he did going into A New Hope and then into Empire Strikes Back. And... He probably had to fight hard for this. I can't imagine him getting a, a green light right away. He had to probably fight for his what he wanted this score to be. But you can imagine as soon as Williams showed anything, I mean, he could have brought, you know, an old little bitty keyboard and just played the, the main theme. That was probably enough, I would think, for most people to go, yep, okay, you were right, sorry. You know what I mean? Well, it evokes so much emotion immediately. You know, and and I think that that is why, you know, it works because the second that people saw Star Wars in May of 77, 
no one was like, yeah, that movie's good, but what was with the music? You know, like it just <laughs> right. worked. And it's all about something, you know, that I, I always keep in the back of my mind when Bayside's writing stuff. And sometimes we're just like handing the song on a plate to the listener. I'm like, they know, I know that they like this, but there's like a line out there of like, don't give people what they want, give people what they don't even know that they want. And yeah. that's just like easier said than done to be innovative, but you have to try to to break the mold a little bit. And I mean, George Lucas has done it a million times over, but to me, that's something to live by. Like as a creative is not just like following trends or following what's worked before. It's tweaking things enough to be different enough because then you get Nirvana, you know, like then you get a, just a pop structured song with a different twist on it. And Nirvana blows up. That could have easily been any other version of a pop rock band and gone the way of the Buffalo, you know, but it was Nirvana mm -hmm. because it was slightly different and no one knew that it was going to blow up, but it did because it was different. Right. Execution. And there's something about Williams music that I know I've said before on the podcast quite a few times and we've talked about it. He's not just good at writing movie scores that, that fit the mood of the scene. He's not just a, a technically talented artist. He's a storyteller with his music. His music is so good that it's like a character in the movie. It's like a location in the movie. It's like the dialogue between the lines. It conveys so much and it does it so effectively that despite it being as catchy as any pop song, it's somehow still not distracting. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's in your face, but it's not in the way. Yeah, it elevates what's going on on the screen. The music says what the character's feeling when there are no words, when it's just emoting with a look. Like when Luke returns home to find Owen and Baru dead, he sees their skeletons burned there. There's no dialogue. There's just Luke's internal dialogue and the way he expresses that with his eyes, with his posture. And John Williams fills in the rest of it with the score. It's unbelievable. It's like superhuman to me. He took a lot of influence from Richard Wagner, who's like a golden era composer, did films and operas and things like that. And uh, I was reading about this and it's called a late motif, L-E-I-T motif. Light. Light motif. Yeah, light motif. And like the concept of giving a voice to each character, you know, a theme yeah. that can be used. It wasn't like he didn't invent it, but I think he revived it in contemporary cinema at a time where it was just like, let's just play a disco song. Right. <laughs> he brought back these, these classical opera film score concepts of like each character has their own theme that we can then use 10 times over, 50 times over and, and reinvent them and have them huge fanfare style and then have them super stripped down and, and intimate. I can't, I just, I really want to get into film scoring. I mean, it's impossible. It's like, I want to be an actor. Sure, bro. <laughs> That's how I feel trying to get into film scoring. But I can't imagine a project like this. Like, I know if I'm scoring a movie, okay, I, I want to do that. You know what I mean? I want to be able to take each character and analyze who they are, what melody I'm inspired to create from this character's performance or a dialogue or whatever it is. But in 1975 or 76, whenever they started making this movie, it'd be like, all right, so I'm making this space movie. 
there's little aliens in brown robes and a gold robot and like a piratey <laughs> kind of guy that has a giant dog. And I want you to write an orchestra to go along with it. I can't, I just can't imagine the mindset of being like, cool. Yep. I got it. Like challenge accepted. And then grand slam home run, you know, I'm going to just completely crush it. Even within his own catalog, right? Jaws, Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, all the other stuff he's done. Is there a more iconic score in cinema history? Well, you have to say no. It's he's he is the most influential and in, from 1977 on because this concept worked. One hundred percent. You yeah. know, so that's the point where all film composition skewed because Star Wars with an orchestral soundtrack worked. So he's the most influential. And it's the idea of like there can't ever be another Nirvana because there was Nirvana. Like mm-hmm. it's a, it's a real thing that there could never again be a most iconic film score because yeah. this is just the one. Mm-hmm. He's just the one. Yeah. You know? Well, my hot take why there'll never be another Nirvana is because that's been done already. The next Nirvana was like Skrillex. And then the next one after that was Billie Eilish, you know, like creating new sounds. But none of those, uh, I mean, look, this may be old guy talking, but <laughs> e- either of those artists, why well, find them both wildly talented? Did either of those artists truly shift the entire musical axis of the planet, you know, in, yeah, in a new probably. direction. Like it's hard to, I don't it, think so because I, I think the world is different though. It's right. Yeah. But I think Billie Eilish makes amazing records, but I think that she is sort of just another pop star that has a new take on being a pop star. She, she's not converting people to a new, another style exactly. of music. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If you're a fan of pop, you're list, you listen to pop radio. They play you Billie Eilish. And you're like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to like. And that doesn't discredit how amazing her music is because I do think it's groundbreaking in the climate we're in now. I, re- I really do. But Nirvana, much like John Williams did with Star Wars in the sci-fi genre, at least at mm-hmm. the time, you know, Nirvana shifted the planet, dude, on its axis. Like there were like hundreds of bands and crews that were out working that like packed their shit and went home when they heard Nevermind on the radio because <laughs> yeah. they were like, well, this is over. <laughs> this era is over. It's all it's this is everything's going to change now. And it, well, and never it, mind it, overtook uh, Michael Jackson in the number one spot. I mean, think about that in the nineties and and killed hair metal and yeah, yes. And no rock band will ever do that again. And that that's what I'm comparing to John Williams in that like I just don't think anyone's ever going to write a new hope again. I don't think there's ever going to be a film score that's like. And I I mean even a hundred years from now, I mean, it's been a long time, dude. A new hope came out a long time ago. Well, dude, it's because the world is different and the opportunities aren't there in terms of like. What hasn't been done yet? What's waiting to be like all the low hanging fruit in terms of music and movies has, has been harvested. Yeah. You know what I mean? And monoculture is gone because we can all dive deep into our little niche cultures on the internet. You know, we're not all listening to like one type of radio across the world, watching one type of TV, you know, going to see the, the 12 movies that are out for the summer. There's just so much that nothing can shift everything like that because mm-hmm. not everyone's attention is focused in the same place. Yeah. I agree with that, but in, brainstorming within this conversation, just consider the idea that in the 70s and prior to the 70s, while this was a new concept in a sci-fi film, orchestral scoring in film, that was what you did. There wasn't another way to score a movie for decades, right? I mean, you, you went in and you scored with strings and so like way oversaturated. However, this score shifted film scoring on its axis. So I'm, I'm, I agree with you that we're extremely oversaturated and it's very hard 
if at all possible, for a single artist to do what Nirvana or Michael Jackson did. Or the Beatles. Yeah, sure. But there's no contemporary artist that I would compare to any of what we've just said or John Williams. And, and I think A New Hope, anything you read about it, that's the headline is like scoring axis. I hate to keep using that word, but like shifted forever because of this score, you know? Yeah. And it's not like he was like, I have an idea. I'm going to use an orchestra to score a movie. Up to that point, that's pretty much all that had been done to score movies was was using string orchestras and, you know, concert orchestras. So I don't know. I, I just think the fact that, that was a medium that everyone had worked in for so long and he was able to just like break this ground with not only the music he made, but the fact that it was a sci-fi movie that everyone thought was going to fall on its ass. It's crazy. Well, Spielberg and Lucas and John Williams, the three of them essentially created the blockbuster film, mm-hmm. like the larger than life all the world's eyes on it type of experience. I mean, it's all drawn from old stuff too. So they combine all of these elements that the world has been messing with for thousands of years into something modern that's a multi-sensory experience. And that was the first time that that combination, that like remix of human uh, art had been combined in that way. And it set off the next 50 years. So you can't recreate those circumstances even though people as talented are probably around that just the circumstances are such that it's impossible to happen again. And I think of, of all the like oversaturation we deal with now in the world, just sensory overload with your 15 different streaming sites that you have to keep up with your, all your shows and your 20 curated playlists you wake up to every day with, you know, new artists and like, how do you keep up? Thanks to them. What other institution in entertainment has survived all this time other than the blockbuster? Right. Really, if you think <laughs> yeah. about it. That one still works. Like, yeah. there's still Top Gun Maverick. That's still your big-ass summer blockbuster that everyone is going to the theater to see, you know? And they, they created that. And so far, that one, that one thing in entertainment, in my mind, hasn't been toppled or oversaturated, I guess. You can't have 50 summer blockbusters that all do that yeah. as well. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, I think we're all right here and we could all be wrong at the same time. <laughs> it's hard to pin down specifically why things panned out the way they did, why they won't again. But one thing that is undeniable that we can all agree on is that the biggest draw, the most timeless appeal of all of this is that it evokes emotion in a way that a lot of other things don't. And there's something about music in these images that's completely indelible for life. And I may be overly emo about it, but I know that with as much certainty as I know anything in the world every time I hear one of these themes. When I was doing notes for this and I was skipping through the soundtracks, I couldn't stop tearing up over and over and over and over. I hear these pieces of music and it takes me straight to those moments. I see in my head exactly what's happening. And even if I don't, I feel exactly what's happening. I have goosebumps right now just talking about talking about listening and not, you know what I mean? It's just, it's undeniable, the emotional impact. So let's do this little test, do this little test, watch a super emotional Star Wars scene with the volume off and see if you got goosebumps. You know, it's like, but 
the other way works. Don't watch anything and listen to the music. You get goosebumps. So yeah, I I was reading yeah. a, a, something about watching the scene where Vader boards Tantive in in A New Hope without the music and like <laughs> how clumsy and weird and awkward it is. Like he might like trip and fall on his cape kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah. But then you put the music back in and it's just the greatest villain of all time stepping onto the scene. You know. Obviously we were all born too late to experience the first three films with with a reasonable memory in yeah. theaters. Yeah. I, I, my story is much the same as Nick's in that I, for some reason, I my parents took me when I was five years old to see Return of the Jedi when it was re-released in the theaters. Mm-hmm. And I had Luke Skywalker toys and I had Han Solo guns, you know, and me and my brother had our Star Wars toys. You know, so when Phantom Menace came out, and you get the title on the screen a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then there's that breath just enough before the main theme starts. Just the fact that I was consciously seeing this like new version of Star Wars, which I was so excited about at the time. The feeling I got at that moment and then years later when Force Awakens came out after like such a long wait for a new Star Wars film. Mm-hmm. Then again, you know, that, that anticipation going into the theater and seeing that come up and then that breath and then that main title kicked in. Like I, people in those theater were cheering, they were clapping. I was frozen. Like I could not do anything but just revel in that moment because that music hit so hard and the excitement in my body would, and the emotion I was feeling of, I, I, I'm, I'm getting this for the first time. This is this. I've waited so long. I don't know what to do with myself. I mean, the emotion that that music evoked in my body was just, it froze me. It paralyzed me because I couldn't believe that I was living in that moment and getting to see what I was getting to see. And I'd heard the song a million times, but it just, it's so powerful. Whether you hear it the first time or the hundredth time, like it just, that first hit is just punches you in the face. I mean, it's just, very emotional every time it's like a needle drop you know in a, in a, a standard soundtrack like a like a rolling stones song in a scorsese movie you know but it's not oh it's the stones oh it's clapton you know it's han solo walking on screen it's luke skywalker it's like it's it is as impactful as a character walking on screen because the music is a character it's a location it's a language it is star wars so it's that feeling but it's so timeless and so much more powerful. I feel like we're all struggling to sufficiently describe it because it's that significant. You think that when the sequels came out and he sat down in the theater, do you think that J-Dub ever thought he was going to hear his score in Dolby Atmos 7.1 surround, like (laughs) melting your face and blowing your hair back when it goes... (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) I can't imagine, like, as a producer and a writer and a recording engineer, like, I'm not a mixer and I, or a mastering technician. So when I'm finished with a track and I send it off and I, and I get it back, it's a whole different experience from when I made the track. Can you imagine even at 80 years old, like what it feels like to sit down in an IMAX theater and hear your score? Like again, in like 7.1 surround when you started on reel to reel. Yeah. I can't imagine like how unreal it must be to just be like, wow. I don't take John Williams as someone who's like, uh, ego person you know he's like i don't take him i don't i don't know i don't know never met john williams but i don't i don't imagine him as being like that guy was an asshole <laughs> I, I imagine him being a pretty like chill artistic kind of humble guy but he's got to be like 
I'm awesome. I'm awesome. I'm so awesome. Dude, I, I would guess he's a lot like, I, I've seen him conduct once a couple years ago in St. Louis, and he has a very humble, but also very aware of his impact and significance kind of vibe to him. Yeah. Where he's, he's, like you said, he's not an asshole. He's like Paul McCartney. Like if you hear Paul, Paul McCartney talk about the Beatles, like he tells a story about somebody coming up to him and they're like, oh my God, you have no idea. You know, you did this and this and this. And he goes, yeah, I know. I, I know, Mike. Thanks. <laughs> you know, like he just, he knows, he gets it, yeah. but he's not an asshole about it. That's what John Williams, that's the vibe that I, I get from him. So wait a minute. He's aware. Wait a minute, Adam. Let's go back a second. John Williams went to St. Louis? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just kidding. He went there. Uh, it was unfortunate for him, but cool for me. <laughs> nah, he probably had a great time. He knew you were there. All right. Well, let's let's kind of uh, get this moving here. Uh, we we could sit and talk about specific scenes and go for hours, but I think it would be fun. Nick gathered some things. We're going to do a little mini den of antiquities. For over a thousand generations, it is the dark side. Oh gosh, it's a kind of core. A Sith wayfinder. Dark science, cloning. Starting off the Den of Antiquities, I know that we've mentioned this before, but it's been a while. John Williams scored Star Wars, the original, before it was episode four, New Hope. He scored Star Wars in eight weeks. What? (laughs) Dude, (laughs) Mendez and I are working on a new Jetta single that we've been working on for almost four weeks. And he scored the entire film in eight. (laughs) I'm telling him that tomorrow when we start working. Dude, we can't even put together an emo punk hardcore album in less than six months. That's crazy, dude. So so what makes maybe that eight-week mark, I don't want to say less impressive, but uh, George Lucas had a lot of temporary tracks or temp tracks on top of the film so that John Williams could actually get the vibe. Yeah, which is pretty standard. And Adam, I know you put a bunch of uh, what the references were. And uh, we'll go over what those songs are and the composers uh, in a certain point of view after this. People have some strong opinions about it. (laughs) It's it's super helpful. Uh, Having only scored one full feature film, the director goes in and puts music in every single spot that they want music. Mm. It definitely speeds up the process because you're not just watching the movie going, huh, I wonder wonder where I should start playing the keyboard. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You have some pretty specific direction. At least we did, and it, it was really helpful. All right. Carry on. So there was a choice made in the original run in 1977 to use the 20th Century Fox fanfare. Everyone knows what that is, which actually at that time wasn't uh, being used anymore. George wanted to bring it back, but they used an old mono version of it in the theaters so that when the opening hit of the main theme of Star Wars came in, it sounded new, loud, polished. Sick. How crazy of a choice is that? Sorry, support bands can only, you know, you can only go up to like 80 dB. <laughs> Sick. And it's purposely in the same, John Williams purposely put the opening theme in the same key as the 20th Century Fox fanfare. So it sounded like one piece. I'm going to go ahead and say that when you watch the original trilogy, even on Disney Plus now, it's still that way. Mm-hmm. Because like the the Fox fanfare fair plays and then the main title hits yeah and your on, your surround system is like stoked and it's just yeah it's <laughs> like i mean you're surrounded like somebody's just kind of like talking to you from across the room and then all of a sudden you're surrounded by like a crowd yeah. of people is yelling at you is basically what it feels like 
cool little trick right there. Dude, when I was a kid, that 20th Century Fox fanfare was Star Wars music to me. Totally. I associated it with. Absolutely. It was like part of the soundtrack, even though it wasn't on the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of that was, it was in the same key. There was only a couple of seconds. I want to say what, after the fanfare, does the Lucasfilm logo come up then? And then a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? Yes. Okay, so you have a couple of seconds of silence there. Yeah, it goes fanfare, Lucasfilm, a galaxy, and then mm-hmm. bam, full stereo image. So that's all clearly on purpose to like get you your ear listening for music, then some silence, and then the loudest, most clear, epic song you ever heard. So cool. I play it on guitar really well. <laughs> As we heard at the top of the yeah, I had to capo it at the last second, okay? <laughs> oh, no, I'm talking in the future after we do it in post and you play it perfectly. Oh, right. I'm yeah, giving yeah, you props yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> Pre-props. All right. This is new info, people. I'm going to hit you with an Easter egg. This is a new a new hope Easter egg. Thank, thank the Obi-Wan Kenobi series the for maker. this. Thank the maker. Thank the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. If I asked you all, what theme plays when Obi-Wan Kenobi dies in A New Hope? Do you know the answer to that? Mm. Final battle. Am I wrong about that? You're wrong. Or is that the, that the music while they're fighting? This is a mind-blowing Easter egg that had obviously not been planned at all. Is it a version of Leia's theme? It sure is. Nice. So now think about everything we know. Jesus. Kenobi and Leia. Come on, Nick. God. Kenobi disappears into the force, becomes one with the force, and Leia's theme plays. A reprise of Leia's theme. Prize. Yes. How about that? That's a thing that he does so well. It's like now in chronological order, it is a reprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a thing that he does so well. I wanted to mention this earlier, but this is probably as good a time as any. The way that he will reuse the same theme throughout the film to evoke the same emotions, but twisted kind of in a way that's appropriate for the scene by either playing it in a different key or doing a different harmony with it, or he'll do some counter melody that creates some new emotions in those harmonies. It's, it's character development as much as anything. It's not just setting a tone. It's like the way he changes things, tells you more about the character. So if, if a scene needs a certain emotion and that emotion matches the traits of a specific character and he brings it in at that time, it does things like, like this does, like this example. And that's not a talent that I can ever imagine having in my life. Yeah. The way that dude can, just with his hands, just start playing like, oh, it should feel like this probably. Oh yeah, oh, bring that in. I just, I get it when I listen to it. But it's just, it's so beyond me. It's superhuman, like I keep saying about this guy. It's crazy. We, we talked about it a little bit during the uh, Rebels season three episode I was on, but that's one of the things I loved about what Kevin Kiner did yes. throughout the Rebels series, what he, he would bring in these moments from John Williams' score into his own score. And one of the scenes where I really loved Kevin Kiner's use of John Williams' compositions was Sabine fighting with Gar Saxon. Mm -hmm. He's saying, I will never yield. You'll have to kill me. And she says something to the effect of that may be the Mandalorian way, but it's not my way. And she kind of, you see her eyes kind of like 
look over and it, then it, you see Ezra and Kanan looking at her. And you slowly hear Kevin Kiner work in the Force theme, Binary Sunset, mm. whatever we have decided the name of that is yet. The, I, the first time and then future times I watched that scene, it was just such a beautiful moment because there's this very intense kind of fighting composition happening while the two of them are dueling. And then when she says, that's not my way and glances at two Jedis and the force thing comes in, it's just so subtle. I think it only comes in for like two seconds, but Kevin Kiner, I th- I feel like he probably, I mean, I, I, like I said at the top of this, John Williams definitely set the tone for everything that followed after Star Wars 77, right? Kiner did a great job of that in Rebels of subtly using previous huge moments and working them into the composition throughout to, to create these special moments on screen as you're watching and to really evoke emotion. And that's, I mean, I imagine that's why John Williams did it was to bring back these feelings and these emotions that his music was setting for all these scenes in the movies. Mm-hmm. Kiner gets it. He does. He definitely understands what's going on. Nick, wrap up this den of antiquities with some mind-blowing data. Some numbers. So John Williams has uh, been nominated for 52 Academy Awards, winning five of them, six Emmy Awards, winning three, 25 Golden Globe Awards, winning four, 72 Grammy Awards, winning 25. <laughs> he has 25 he's, Grammys. He's established. I wonder, I wonder what the, uh, the Academy Award, like what the percentage is, right? Like there, there's... Throughout history, m- multiple people in each field, you know, each, whether you're an actor or a producer or a director or whatever, they get, you know, you get multiple nominations. I wonder what the odds are or like what the, never tell me the odds. May the force be with you. I wonder what the percentage of uh, w- the win rate, you know, uh, is yeah. across all the years of Academy Awards. I wonder what five like, out like of 52. Yeah, like I wonder, if, I wonder yeah. if five out of 52 is on par with, because... Obviously, you're like that's crazy to get nominated 52 times and only win five. But I wonder, I wonder what that is. Either way, he is the most nominated. Period. Right for Academy Awards. Period. Right. No, Walt Disney still has 59. Okay, so so John John Williams has to score the next two sequel trilogies or whatever <laughs> they're going to be, yeah. and he could catch up. Yeah, between now and turning his 100th birthday, because he's got Indiana Jones coming up, so that that would be seven films he'd get that he'd tie Walt Disney. Dude. I'd be happy with the tie ball game. The man's unreal. All right, let's move on to a certain point of view. It's gonna get uh, <laughs> it's gonna get fun. A certain point of view. Many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. All right, many have said that John Williams, despite being obviously the greatest musician of all time, at least in my opinion, he just ripped off other artists, other composers and that he's not as great as people think he is. I would disagree, but there are several examples of of some things that he was clearly influenced by, paid homage to, paid tribute to, and we're going to show a few of them. The first being the main title theme, the opening credits, Star Wars logo hits, we know the main theme, right? It's been pointed out that this bears a striking resemblance to the main theme from a movie called King's Row, the composer was Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Yeah, there's some YouTube mashups of this guy. It's pretty undeniable. So here's the opening theme of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. 
Now here's the main title from King's Row. So pretty close. That's some uh, vanilla ice. It's like the first two notes. <laughs> you know, as the infamous Pablo Picasso said, good artists copy, great artists steal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. It happens. Han and Leia's theme, the, um, which, which he also ripped off from himself. Oh, the princess and the scoundrel? Yes, them. He also did a really, really close version of in Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Marion and um, an indie kind of romance oh, yeah, scene. for sure. Yeah, but that's, you can rip yourself off. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's there. It's there to be observed. So let's do a dinner of antiquities for Amber Lynn real quick. We literally, <laughs> I'm just going to just throw this out there right now. So our first song on our first album is Ready Fuels. The song Audrey Start the Revolution on Never Take Friendship Personal. We came up with that song because Joey ran the song backwards as we were doing some writing for Never Take Friendship Personal, we went, that's a really cool <laughs> arrangement. And when Audrey Start the Resol- Revolution on Never Take Friendship Personal is literally Ready re- Fuels backwards. That's, that's awesome. So I love sometimes that. You, sometimes you influence yourself, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I dig music. I dig music. Okay, Han Solo and the princess from The Empire Strikes Back. Some say sounds a lot like Tchaikovsky's violin concerto so let's hear han solo and the princess now here's tchaikovsky Definitely a different energy, but undeniably same basic melody, same hook. All right, next one from A New Hope. The Desert and the Robot Auction is what the track is called. But specifically the piece, I believe, is called The Dune Sea of Tatooine. Uh, Dune, huh? Sounds a whole lot like The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, which he composed in 1913. Uh, It's damn close, and it goes a little something like this. That, of course, was Star Wars. Now here's Stravinsky. That's what you call the same thing. (laughs) This is the 1913 one? Yeah, Igor Stravinsky, 1913. Wow. Gutsiest move I ever saw, Mav. It's glaring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would not hold up in a court of law. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but it would not. If, <laughs> if Stravinsky was around, he, he probably would call his attorney and see what's up. <laughs> I mean, that's straight up Red Hot Chili Peppers now having to pay royalties to Tom Petty for oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. ripping him off. Yeah, or Sam Smith also pays uh, royalties Sam Smith, to Tom, Tom Petty. Petty. 
Man, Tom Petty, he Tom Petty's done so well since he like stopped making music. Fuck the ball again. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. <laughs> Here's a big one. There's something called the Planets by a composer named Gustav Holst. Something he did in 1918. This was obviously a big influence on Williams when he wrote the Imperial Attack piece for A New Hope, and also the Imperial March in Return of the Jedi. There's sort of a different piece for each planet. This one is Mars. Here's the Imperial Tech piece from A New Hope. And of course, here's the Imperial March. And of course, here's the Imperial March, which was basically just a, a refined, like, catchier version inspired by this or the layers so the vibes are like nearly identical it's not a note for note ripoff but like it's it's thematically the exact same kind of thing yeah and then here's the really crazy one to me. This is the end of the Mars piece from Holst. Check this out. This is the, um, the trench run. Like Ryan said, it's the end of the trench run when they fire the final shot to blow up the Death Star. So here's that. I'm just going to be an un uncultured POS right now and say that most classical music sounds the same to me. <laughs> so like you're like, if there's some timpanis and some strings happening, I'm like, Oh, those, that is that the same piece of music, you know, but there's a lot of that throughout musical history. I mean, whether it's intentional or not, or whether it's influenced or whatever, I, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's not really, it's kind of undeniable that the dude, if you look at his total body of work, has created some of the most memorable and striking pieces of music to ever be put into film or just, you know, just to be recorded, period. Yeah, and everyone is influenced by people. Everyone, you know, pays direct homage, whether or not they admit it. I mean, all of our bands are versions of bands that came before us who weren't quite mainstream. We took those influences and turned them into more pop, friendly or pop accessible songs my band straight up took refused glass jaw and saves the day and made a new band out of it i've i've showed fan like super fans of story of the year 
who are younger refused and they go, holy shit, dude, that sounds just like story of the year. <laughs> and I have to say, no, story of the year sounds just like that. You know, it's just a, it's a, a thing you do as a musician. And that doesn't mean that you're a ripoff artist. It means that, you know, you pay tribute and there are certain things that just work and you use them. And then you do a bunch of other original stuff that works really well too. And if you've got the body of work, like you're saying, Dion, that John Williams has, it's kind of undeniable, this dude's talent, regardless of the fact that he borrowed directly from some things that George Lucas most likely put in place to say, hey, just do that. <laughs> yeah. Because guess what? My whole movie is me doing just that from this movie I like and that movie I like. Yeah. George Lucas did the exact same thing on screen. You know, uh, I mean, you, you guys covered this in uh, your episode about Dune, but it's kind of hard if you are doing something in sci-fi at the time that George Lucas did it to not be influenced by Dune. I mean, Dune within the sci-fi world is the godfather of sci-fi. It's not that there was no sci-fi before Dune, but Dune made such, I mean, the world that Frank Herbert created was so inspirational to people like George Lucas and, you know, probably, you know, millions of other writers and readers that it's almost impossible to not accidentally or intentionally pay homage or rip off what Frank Herbert did because the guy created something that nobody had thought of or seen before. And it's very rare in a lifetime that that happens. You know, we all like to think that we're writing something original or, you know, as creators or we're doing something new. But like you said, it's everybody kind of rips off somebody Everything's a remix, man. Whether or not you do it intentionally, if you just change one chord or whatever, you know, or you just literally take someone's arrangement, put different lyrics over it and say, I'll just pay the artist later, <laughs> so, which does happen, believe it or not. But um, I, I don't, it doesn't really change my perception of John Williams. It doesn't change my perception of Led Zeppelin. It doesn't change my perception of a lot of things, you know, I, it's almost impossible to not accidentally <laughs> you know, sound like some, something else. It's, it's, yeah. it's almost impossible to be original in this world. And, you know, there's very few people, like I said, it's a, it's a once in a lifetime thing to actually be a truly original person. I, I think that, I think that concept is a myth, dude. I think there's no such thing in art as a truly completely 100% original thought or idea. Yeah. I don't think so either. I mean, you look at it like all the, like artists like Van Gogh and Pablo Picasso who are referenced earlier, you know, it's like, I mean, these guys were probably ripping off or being influenced by local artists in Spain and France and wherever they were, you know, like yep. they, they were intentionally seeking out hotbeds of creativity in Europe in order to influence what they were going to create next. Yeah. I mean, if you read anything about like Bob Dylan, in any of like what what someone would consider to be a truly original like or like groundbreaking artist. Bob Dylan was basically a hobo traveling around the country trying to find the next like thing to inspire him at one point. You know, the artists are trying to be inspired and whether it comes off kind of accidentally ripping something off or comes off as sounding original, you know, you can ask somebody, what was your inspiration? Like, oh, I want to sound like this. Sometimes you're like, yeah, I can hear that. Or sometimes you're like, yeah, that sounds nothing like that. But that's cool that that was an influence for you. I mean, we all know that Chuck Berry stole his sound from Marty McFly via yeah, his cousin yeah. Marvin Berry. It just happens. He, they, they were just lucky that there was a phone on side stage in that high school <laughs> that could actually I mean, pick also, up. There was, there was also like a video camera filming Marvin Berry calling Chuck Berry. 
Yeah. Talk about unlucky. Yeah. 35 millimeter film documenting the whole thing. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to I Love You, I Know. I love you. I know. Let's start off with some comments from the patrons. Let's see what they thought. We've got a bunch of patrons with us now at the Jedi Council tier here listening and watching live. Nick, you want to read some? Yeah. Logan says, hands down, Luke looking out to watch the binary sunset in A New Hope. Brad, you know what? Brad likes the Ewok victory song. The original? The y- I think that, y- that's, y- yeah. Yeah, yeah. The original. It's great, yeah, dude. It slaps. Yep, that's a good song. Uh, and Zach is bringing in a little bit Mandalorian flavor. Season two finale song called Open the Door. Emotional seeing Luke back. And we do hear the force theme there for a second. So uh, it's a hell of a moment. All right, it's time for our picks. Favorite themes, favorite moments. We can do one of each. You can do both. You can do just one because uh, it is hard to pin down a specific theme because they are reused. So you can kind of interpret this however you want. Nick, why don't you go first? My f- well, favorite theme is I'm, I'm undeniable. Just the Force theme, main theme, binary sunsets, whatever you want to call it. Often called Luke's theme, actually. Yeah, too. yeah. And, so, the, and the Skywalker yeah. theme. Yeah, as multiple. Yeah. So here's my favorite moment: throne room scene in the Last Jedi. And now, foolish child, he ignites it. And kills his true enemy. Right here. This is, to me, the best cue ever. My goodness. Ah. If ever there was a moment where I wanted to stand up in a theater because of a moment, it was the Force theme hitting while Kylo pulled the Skywalker legacy saber into Rey's hand. And my goodness, I just saw. So I was at Comic-Con this weekend and the Lucasfilm Pavilion kind of just had a giant screen that had like what I would say are like Star Wars greatest hits. And that was like one of the moments. And I was just in awe watching that again. So that that's fresh on my mind, but man, is that a good moment? God, what a scene, dude! What a scene! Uh, man, I just you playing that. I, I like the whole entire scene flashed through my mind. Like, yeah. it's uh, I mean, it's still going in my head right now. I'm just, I'm just picturing, <laughs> dude. dude <laughs> yeah. The behind, the behind the shoulder, yeah. the yeah. lightsaber through the face. Just there's the drop, the mic drop move. It's just there's so. The sequels are awesome. Everyone can suck it. What's so interesting about that moment, you referenced the Force theme, and you chose that moment mm-hmm. yeah. where Williams is doing something, he's doing a much different thing with that motif than he is during the binary sunset in A New Hope. The instrumentation, the harmonies that he's doing with it, it's like it's the same force, but yeah. it's about power in that moment. Gravity. In the binary sunset moment in A New Hope, it's about the force sort of calling to Luke. It's about longing and, and trying to connect with something distant or kind of mysterious. But in that last Jedi moment, it's about Kylo and Rey harnessing the force together as a dyad and about the power that it gives them. Mm-hmm. So again, it's the same force, but it's how the character's experiencing it in the different scenes. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the power of a dude like John Williams. Ryan Key, what's your favorite theme and or scene? 
I'm gonna I'm gonna hang in the same space with my buddy Glup Shido tonight. <laughs> Here's why I'm gonna choose this moment. I, like I could go back and look at the four because I Nick a real original choosing the force theme. Uh, <laughs> also, hands down, undeniably the most emotional and moving uh, for me personally. This is my opinion, kids. It's my opinion. The most moving piece that, that he's he's ever written. But I could go back to A New Hope when Luke finds Owen and Baru burned to death. And because in that one you get those like like the rhythm section strings. So gnarly. But I was like three years old the first time I saw that, right? So yes, it's a huge moment. I want to take this moment because this is the one that I got to see as an adult that you know, as as an aware person in the theater, ass in the seat, watching the movie that was like tears welling and spilling from my eyes because uh, Dion, you mentioned this earlier, like The Force Awakens, just going after all that time and sitting down like, okay, here we go. J.J. Abrams written and directed Star Wars film. I am so excited. I can't, I'm about to poop in my pants, you know? So in the forest, when Rey pulls the same Skywalker saber into her hand in the face of Kylo Ren, super outmatched, you know, super outnumbered, if you want to say it that way. And that theme plays, dude. the most empowering moment in Star Wars, you know what I mean, right? Like the most intense, like pun intended awakening in all of Star Wars, like her realization of who she is. Oh, the look on her face is so great. And uh, let's go back, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes in this podcast about like, watch that without the music. It would be cool. Like she catches the lightsaber and lights it up. But would her performance without that theme be as effective? Absolutely not. So I'm also going to go with the sequel moment because I, I feel like I loved all The Force Awakens. I, I loved every minute of it as a fan going back to the theater for the first time in 10 years to see a Star Wars film. As a fan, I was already beyond psyched. But really, man, that moment, on the, that was like the Jedi moment in that film. You know what I mean? And personally, when I go see Star Wars, like I'm here for the Jedi shit. So I'm going to go with a sequel moment as well. Dude, I'm surprised that you didn't even mention Yoda's theme and the raising of the X-Wing. Love the scene, not my favorite piece of music. All right. It doesn't, it's, I, it, it's, it's great. And it's, it's Yoda's theme. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's all magical. But Yoda's theme does not pull your heartstrings and make your eyes water like the binary sunset. It just doesn't. Yeah, it's, it's next level. Dion, how about you? For very similar reasons as what Ryan just said, I'm going to go with Duel of the Fates. Just seeing new Star Wars in the theater for the first time as a conscious person. Yeah. You know, it's like you grew up seeing Star Wars, but it's one of those things like you grew up listening to U2 or, you know, Led Zeppelin. You didn't discover them on your own. You just kind of, they were just always there. Right. So actually watching a new Star Wars film for the first time as an adult and, you know, being conscious enough to experience a moment. When Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are fighting Darth Maul and that Duel of the Fates score is going, I mean, it's so intense. Oh, 
with the choir that's playing with the orchestra. It's just every bit of it matches the intensity of that fight. It's so funny because you have so many prequel haters out there, but everybody bitched about not hearing <laughs> Duel of the Fates during the Obi-Wan series. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, Duel of the Fates, I think, is mine. I, there's, there's other moments that I would say like are great, but they're more of like, as we have established, we have learned the, the, the word reprise. I think the subtle use of the... It's Leia's theme in Rogue One, right? When she says, do you have someone to trust? And he says, I would trust her with my life. Yes. Yes. When Leia's theme slowly comes in there, that's like, it, it's such a, it's such a slight moment, but it's, that's like one that gets me every single time, especially since Carrie Fisher has passed. They just like every single time. That's such a great use of music to evoke an emotion. But yeah, for me, number one, Duel of the Fates. Every time I hear it, I get so pumped. I'm going to cheat as usual and give a non-specific answer because there's just so much to say, especially things that we've left out. I just want to shout out a few things, first and foremost. Starting with the sequel trilogy, there are so many amazing themes in the sequel trilogy that I know in time will hang with most of the prequel and original trilogy themes when we look back. Ray's theme is incredible. It's so John Williams, but it's so modern also. We talked about this when we covered that film, the pace of it, how it's more in line with the pace of a modern film and modern editing, and it's just brilliant. That's my alarm every morning, Ray's theme. That's how I wake up every morning. Really? Mm-hmm. Dude, it's it's beautiful, and it it's so perfectly... Do you force pull your phone into your hand to actually turn it <laughs> yeah. off? Yeah. <laughs> actually, the Resistance theme... March of the Resistance is, is amazing as well. There are a, a lot of themes and of brand new themes in the sequel trilogy that are great. I also want to shout out the original Ewok Yubnub song. Mm -hmm. It's the bop, dude. It's so good. I miss it so much. I think what replaced it is fine. But I miss that original so much. It's incredible. For me, it's it's a tough call between, for my actual favorite, it's a tough call between the binary sunset and Leia's theme, mainly for emotional reasons. I think Leia's theme is, it's probably third or fourth if I wanted to rank all of them in terms of like their quality and effectiveness. The main theme is just like, it's the one. The Binary Sunset to me is kind of my favorite. The Imperial March is undeniable. It's probably number two of all time. I'm surprised no one's even mentioned it yet. The Imperial March is like unbelievable. I think uh, I, I had a thought today uh, when you sent me the list of the things we were going to be talking about and everything. I kind of thought like, am I going to be cheating if I say the main theme? Just because every single movie that starts with it, obviously, I mean, you see, I mean, again, you see a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, breath, bam, yep. main title. Sorry. I mean, every single time I, you know, it, it just, that's it how you hits. start a fucking movie. That's what you're <laughs> saying. In your yeah, head. exactly. Exactly. Like you cannot not be stoked. When you hear that, if you're at the beginning of a movie that you've seen a thousand times, it's, I get stumped every single time. Yeah. I, I would almost say, like, that's a given. Like, it's, yeah. it's just incredible. I mean, 
I'm sure if there was a poll somewhere that that would probably be like the barn burner winner of, of all of them. Yeah. But And then you, you look at something like Leia's theme and the binary sunset as their, the, their most basic like title track versions and you judge them by that. But then if you really back up and look at how often they're used in different contexts, like we talked about Leia's theme, I think the hardest it ever hit me was in the rise of Skywalker trailer. Jesus Christ, I lost my shit. I could not, I was like uh, just huffing and puffing and ugly crying so hard at Celebration because it's so powerful. You had all that extra instrumentation with it and it's like a whole new piece of music. And then they do the same thing. Williams does the same thing with the Force theme in the throne room and metal ceremony. He plays it in a different key. He adds harmonies to it that make it this big triumphant kind of military fanfare thing that's very proud and powerful sounding. then you can play that theme i think the moment where i decided okay this is my favorite piece of music ever written so here's my answer finally the force theme i saw a youtube clip of a person just playing it on a single trumpet in a stairwell so there's this amazing natural reverb playing this one melody on a trumpet and it made me cry That's when I said, okay, that's my favorite piece of music ever written. It never fails. I have to ask Ryan this specifically because we both recorded with Neil Avron. Yes. Did Neil ever say to you that every great song can be broken down to an acoustic and one singer, and it's still going to be just as impactful as the full band version to you? Yeah, So, but he, I could ask him this. And he could be like, no, but I, I'm pretty sure this is true. <laughs> he got that idea, you know, that quote or whatever from Rick Rubin. Okay. It's like a famous Rick Rubin thing, which is like, if you can't play your song on an acoustic guitar, it's not a good song. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, look at what he did with Johnny Cash and Neil Diamond. I mean, the songs are super impactful. We recorded our second Capitol record. We recorded like next door to the Dixie Chicks while they were recording Taking the Long Way. And Rick Rubin was like executive producer on that. And we got to know them through the process. We were just like sitting next door to each other for six weeks, you know? And they were telling us about how they would go to his house to show him demos and stuff. And he just like to these legendary, the highest selling female group of all time on, on the planet. He would just be like, nope, that sucks. Like, that's not a good song. <laughs> he, he apparently just pushes you, you know, to your to your absolute limit. But 
strips it down to that idea that it has to be this playable melody, which, you know, you heard me crush that melody at the beginning of the show on my acoustic <laughs> guitar. You didn't even need all that fanfare. Yeah, one take. You one just take needed one live. guy so and crazy. one take and one Gibson <laughs> J45. Or one take Willie. And proof that it's a good song. Yeah, so that's it for me. And I, I probably, it's probably recency bias, but the, the same moment in The Force Awakens when Ray grabs the saber in the snow, it's undeniable. And if you deny it, your opinion's wrong. <laughs> I'll also say that, uh, you know, catch me on any other day and I will probably have a different opinion because there's so many moments that I love in all these films and they all hit me differently depending on the mood I'm in. Yeah. Let's just say this. The only time I've been driving around in the last three or four years and put on a Star Wars song while I was driving was the Mandalorian theme because that shit slaps. Yeah. <laughs> you could drive around to well, that. We didn't even get to that. There's a whole... <laughs> we'll do another whole episode. Other level. Yeah. You guys just want to do that next week? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap up and get out of here. Dion, I imagine you probably have some things to tell the folks about what you have coming up with your music band that you play an instrument in. I do. July 29th, the day after this the episode airs, Amberlin is releasing our first EP of new music since 2014. Uh, it's an EP called Silver Line. We're really excited about it. We've released two songs so far, so we're releasing the remaining three on Friday, and we're really excited for everybody to hear a little bit of what we've been working on. And we are currently doing some uh, residencies around the country, which has been fun, just celebrating albums we've done over the past 20 years. And it, uh, we did our first one in Cleveland last weekend and if you guys are interested in hearing some new music uh amberlynn is right here for you uh you can find me on instagram at d rex if you want to keep up anything or just follow at amberlynn uh, for all things amberlynn related nice nick how about you tell the people well, a while ago, I uh, announced that I have a children's book called That's Okay coming out. It's officially being printed. It'll be shipped next week. So if you did not buy that yet, go to hecreative.com. And episode 55 of the Radio Radio Show is out now. So you can find out more info about all these things at Nick Bayside on Instagram. Thank you very much. William Ryanke. Hey, Dion, thanks for uh, letting us borrow your drummer, because remember when our bands broke up and then our bands aren't broken up anymore? Yeah. Honestly, I swear to God, I, I never thought that there would be a day where Yellow Card would play a show again. So the fact that we're playing it with Nate from Anne Berlin is very special, and we're very excited. So thank you. Thanks for, thanks for the loner. We, we took a vote, and we said yay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Yellow Card's doing some stuff again. You can follow at Yellow Card uh, on the socials. We have a show coming up in Chicago in September. I am working on new music with the lead guitarist from Yellow Card, my buddy Ryan Mendez. We've been working on uh, some electronic music for many, many, many moons now, and uh, we like to call ourselves Jetta, appropriate for this podcast. Uh, you can find us on the socials at Jetta Music. We have some music out now anywhere you stream. You can just search Jetta on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever. Uh, we have a new single coming out next month. Really excited about it. And then otherwise, I'm just doing my thing. I pop around through emo nights. I'm streaming on Twitch all the time. And uh, you can find me online at William Ryan Key. All my stuff is at Adam the Skull, my band's story of the year. We'll have a new song out in about exactly a month, actually. New album's done. That's exciting. It's happening. It's really happening. Yeah. At story of the year on all things. This podcast can be found at Thank the Maker on Twitter 
at ThankTheMakerPod on Instagram and TikTok. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash ThankTheMakerPod. You can support for just a few bucks, get Discord access, or up to the top level to get direct Jesus. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the Adam theme. <laughs> now play it with a dark harmony so it conveys a feeling of longing. If, if you want to uh, watch us around and f*** up and be idiots here while we're actually recording. That was a lot of droid beeps. The, <laughs> that's what the Jedi Council tier gets you. Thanks to the patrons for uh, being those Jedi Council tier people. We love you. Your patronage is not only appreciated, but necessary to do this. So thank you. All that said, it's time to go. But we do have a quote of the week, which we haven't had for a while. Ryan Key, you want to read this for us? Without John Williams, bikes don't really fly. Nor do brooms and Quidditch matches, nor do men in red capes. There is no force. Dinosaurs do not walk the earth. We do not wonder. We do not weep. We do not believe. Steven Spielberg. You're right, Steve. That's gnarly. Stevie, baby. He couldn't be more correct. We love you, John Williams. My favorite musician is 90 years old. What a, th- what a sentence for a person to say <laughs> in an emo band. <laughs> Everybody, thanks for listening. Dion, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Patrons, thanks for your patronage and your patience. Until next time. <laughs> May the force be with Ryan's guitar skills. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>